Oh, dude, I hate online classes. Teaching a bunch of them right now. Yeah. It's just that it makes the questions you get via email much more frustrating. Yeah. Because you no longer, like, it's much harder to connect in your mind however much you want to. Like, you don't really remember their faces. And it's like, you just, it's just so much easier to create, like, this distance where they're not, like, real people that you interact with. You know, they're just, like, more students asking you annoying questions. Yeah, man. The uh, social mediafication of higher education. It just takes away. Oh my God, the emails are insane, dude. Like yeah. I have maybe a few students who have emailed me in an appropriate manner. Like I have so many students that are messaging me, just like, "Hey, I can't see this," and then right. another email will be like, "The work for the week," and then a third email will be like, "For this class," you know, like because it's like split between two classes. It's weird. I mean, that's I'm just like, dude. Do. I'm like, this is not okay. Yeah, dude, it's like group chat. Everything is group chat. Everything is uh, a feed where you like and share things, like everything. So that includes higher ed now, too. And I just keep being like, please make sure you adhere to the standards for communications as outlined in the syllabus. Yeah. Um, and they're not going to. No. And, like, I, like, just... I don't know. I cut this like discussion post I was going to post for the week just because I was like, this is too much grading for me. Like, I can't fucking <laughs> add another thing to my plate on top of them turning in essays because it's rough draft, so it's going to be a mess. Woo! Yeah, man. Social media of education, of higher ed. That's what it is. So it's going to get worse. It's going to get more like this. Well, it's just now that, you know, there are a lot more requirements to how you have shit online. And I imagine that even for, like, in-person instructors, uh, well, especially for in-person instructors, that's got to be, like, it's got to be, like, pandemic all over again. I mean, I always kind of did that, but, like, it's so much content is online that students are no, like, it feels like students don't have to be responsible for what happens in class, you know? Like... Because they can just find whatever they need online after. They can find the lecture online or they can, you know, whatever it is. Oh, yeah, man. That's good. I mean, that's the growing trend. Everybody who teaches in higher ed knows it. Uh, increasingly, we take agency away from students, so they're not required to do any work. Um, and if they don't do the work, well, then there's a laundry list of excuses they can pick from, all given to them by the administration. And then it's, it's the not teacher's even fault. agency away from the students. It's just like demanding sort of more hand-holding by the teacher. Which I would say takes agency away from the students, yeah. And it takes responsibility away from the students. Which is, you know, agency. I mean... I'm not responsible for this. Therefore, I have no agency over it. Well, it's just like I'm teaching remedial sections and they're fully online. Like there's no face-to-face -face component. I'm like, that's fine, you know, but I'm also not in a position to be creating the kind of content that would be best suited for them. And overall, I don't think they are best suited for an online learning environment. Like don't think that students who are at like, 
you know, between a seventh and 11th grade reading and writing level. It's impressive they're that high, yeah. Should be jumping into college in a fully remote class. But, like, I don't know. Maybe I'm, like, just biased because that's how uh, did it, you know? Do they still call it remedial in Maryland? Um, this is for Kentucky. Or Kentucky, yeah. Well, they don't call, They don't even... There's a six. Technically, it's illegal out here. They don't call it remedial, but there's still remedial classes, but they just don't call it I that mean, anymore. I mean, I think in Kentucky, they still talk about it as, like, remedial classes because they, like, know that they're filling a gap. Right. They know that they have a lot of issues with the under-preparedness in their, like, you know, secondary ed system. Right. And that students just aren't prepared, so they make colleges pick up the slack. And that's how they create college preparedness. So, like, I mean, that was just, like, all of my practicum in grad school. It was just, like, about that kind of shit. Well, that's but, what I mean. Yeah, like... I don't know what they call them in Maryland. And they don't call it that on the, um, like, on the site or on the, like, on PeopleSoft or, like, whatever, on the course catalog. Like, right. they say, you know... This is designated to students with an ACT score in reading and writing of, you know, this or lower. Right. <clears throat> yeah, well, what they did is they just eliminated that as a category because remedial classes usually didn't have college credits. So students were paying colleges for no college credits if you took remedial courses. Yeah, which is they why do they in Kentucky. Yeah, well, that's why they changed the entire definition now. So now you're taking a remedial class, but they give you credits, and they usually make it like a longer class or something, so you or get four like, or five credits. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. This is like five so credits, but games. they split it into yeah. two classes, which is stupid. Yeah. It should just be one five-credit course that's English 101 with a workshop. Like, But instead, they split it into two things where it's like you get two separate grades, and it's dumb. Yeah. Well, so yeah, they just talk about uh, as a workshop that you take concurrently with the regular lecture. Yeah, as we've mentioned on this podcast several times, like it's the reason it sounds so silly is because there is no actual like evidence to support any of the steps we've taken. <laughs> There's nothing to support this structure of the class. It was just made up one day and now that's just what it is and you know, gets butts in seats. That's all that matters. Well, retention is everything. Oh, I haven't been. Not even recording. retention. I'm recording now. I wasn't before. I didn't know we started. Where? Uh, but. All that yeah, care man. is the initial payment. Well, and the they next. They don't withdraw payment. in the first three weeks. That's all that and matters. That, um, they care that their retention numbers look good so that they get funding. And that's the Not whole even. game right now. I mean, dude, the graduation rates at some, even MFA programs, I mean, a lot of them are atrocious. Like, you get people dropping out after a year. Yeah, well, I imagine at, you know, community Beyond. colleges, yeah. it's way, way more, right? Like, yeah, of course. I mean, I like teaching this class. Like, it can be great, but it, it just makes it more frustrating because you're online and you can't do that one-on-one -on -one interaction the same way. And because they're all like workers and that's why they all like picked an online class or like they have other shit going on, you know? And so it's like, I can't expect them to be available for that one-on-one -on -one time either. Like I can't demand that they have like video time with me or I don't think I can. Like, I mean, it, that seems, I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I'm trying my best. Yeah, I wouldn't demand it at all. Yeah, that's definitely, it's all going to get worse. It's only going to get worse at this point. At least in terms of, and then, yeah, and then they just screw over the teachers more. I mean, I will say that, like, I work for a school where, like, I think among community colleges in particular, like, the school does a good job of, like, treating its adjuncts pretty well, even though we don't get paid very much, at least in my department. But, you know, what you going to do? Yeah, that's rare. Yeah. I learned that the hard way. Yeah. I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. Today we're doing James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room. So, those that don't know, this one was originally published in 1956. Uh, the version that I have, what do you have? I have Vintage International paperback, which was originally put out in 2013. Yep. This one? Yeah, exact same yeah. one. Yeah, okay, yeah. so the page numbers will match up. I think this is, this is basically the, the only paperback you can get. Or not the only one, but like the one that's like, uh, you yeah, buy a it's... new one. Yeah, it's the new one. I mean, I got this used. It wasn't... I don't remember how much I paid for this one, but I think I got it pretty cheaply. More cheaply... Like, cheaper than you can get um, most poetry collections. For sure. Yeah. Eh, I mean, most paperbacks, you're going to pay between, what, like 7 and 15 bucks for most paperbacks? I mean, but... it depends... If they're, are they new? <laughs> yeah, I'd say brand new. Most yeah. paperbacks between 7 and 15, depending on what they are. <clears throat> like if they're mass market stuff for like the pop writers, it's, you know, like 7 bucks or something. But as we always say, buy books, buy a copy of the book, read it, put it on your shelf. That's what we always like to do with this one. Uh, and before we get started and dive into this, we just have some housekeeping that we always like to do so we don't forget. Uh, on this podcast, we are looking for workshop horror stories. If you have a workshop horror story, send it to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to uh, read it on here and commiserate with you. It'll be a good time. Uh, we also have subscription plans. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash heavyboard to receive full access to our entire catalog. Uh, you can also just support us by subscribing on whatever podcast platform you love. Uh, or whatever podcast platform you choose is your favorite, etc. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channels, share, like, leave a five-star review. All of that good stuff is all available at, uh, shit, I lost my place. Support us on Patreon, support us on YouTube. If you just want to like, share, subscribe, that helps us grow, that helps spread the word, and it doesn't cost you anything. And again, we're looking for workshop horror stories. Send those to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com.
All right. That's it. So now on to Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Uh, pretty famous. Those who are listening to this podcast probably already know who James Baldwin is <laughs> and like his importance in terms of 20th century American literature. But I'm just going to read a little about thing here. I'm going to skip the lengthy list of like uh, his publications. He's published a lot of books. He published a lot of books in his lifetime. Uh, James Baldwin was born in 1924 and educated in New York. Author of more than 20 works of fiction and nonfiction. Um, I guess he's he's pretty famous for both, right? Like fiction and nonfiction that he's done. Because he wrote for all the big magazines and stuff like that in the 60s and 50s. I mean, really until his death. Yeah, I would imagine he's most known, I mean, for, like, Go Tell It on the Mountain and Notes of a Native Son. Right. Are, like, the two big ones that I see assigned all the time in classes. Yeah, and he won a, he's won a bunch of awards. Um, uh, Eugene F. Saxon Memorial Trust Award, a Rosenwald Fellowship, Guggenheim Fellowship, uh, Partisan Review Fellowship, uh, Ford Foundation Grant, etc., etc. He died in 87. It was a huge loss to American literature. And like I said, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know a lot of this, but just for those that don't, that's a very brief overview of Baldwin and not even touching on his importance and impact, etc. But we're going to get into that during the pod. Uh, initial thoughts. What do you think, Soph? Reaction, likes, dislikes? I mostly really enjoyed it. Um, I have... I'm a little disappointed by the ending. I wish it had hit harder. I know we'll talk about this, I think. Um, there are a lot of... Uh, you know, maybe some of this is because I do really, like, enjoy the... Uh, you know, we're in France. This is, like, the like expat scene. Um, I enjoy that. I think it's... Uh, it makes for a good... sort of... would you call it a coming-out story? I'm not like I, I feel like not necessarily uh, and I think that's part of what makes it so complicated and honestly a good story is because it's not so clear that it's like yeah because the guy doesn't really not really but I'm, end, I mean like, kind of. yeah I'm we're gonna, it isn't I'm like gonna call it that yeah sort of well, vaguely coming of uh, age maybe that's one of my yeah. questions but we'll get into I think that it's somewhere yeah. between coming of age and also maybe coming out um yeah. There are moments where I feel like I wish it were a little m more complicated. I mean, it's not that it's not complicated, but it feels like a lot of the story is sort of, I don't know how to describe it, like straight through, like sort of everything follows this one, um, this one storyline where like not, I mean, stuff's happening, but like not that much happens outside of this one relationship that we see not that it has to but it, it i don't know i feel like i'm missing something well it's all told from like the narrator's perspective um it's like it's told in past tense which is common for books right but it's about it's relaying past events and it's not quite uh, linear as they say or you know right. timeline in terms of that it kind of jumps back and forth in terms of what they call a modular storyline, if you're taking like fiction writing classes or something. Uh, but it also straddles that line a little bit. So it is, it's not really an experimental book, but it is just like, you know, a well done 
nobody's gonna doubt Baldwin's chops. Like he is skilled. He knows what he's doing in terms of crafting yeah. a story, writing a book, all of that. And when you when you're that skilled, you can play around a little bit with this stuff. So it couldn't it doesn't have to neatly fit into these categories and all that. But yeah, my initial thoughts. I, I like the book too, although there were moments where I like like Sophie said the ending falls a little flat. That happens a lot in literary books, and I'm sure we'll get into this at some point. It's a recurring theme on this podcast. You know, what is the dividing line between what we would call literary fiction and <clears throat> pop fiction or, you know, just not literary fiction? All that kind of stuff. If anybody's curious, we talk a lot about that on our Twilight episodes, all available for free on whichever, wherever you get your podcasts. But, yeah overall it was a good read a fast read um and this is a pretty classic text at this point so you know you want to read it you want to absorb it think about it but and it reads fast it's only about 170 pages you can read it in a couple days shit you can read it in an afternoon if you're a fast reader and it does flow like it flows which is what all good books do like there's even if they're not like the most interesting books or it's like boring like there's like a flow to it, and I think that's what a lot of people look, or a lot of things we look for, and things we have struggle, we struggle to describe in literature, is this kind of flow, this kind of thing that pulls us through the book, that we can't quite place our finger on necessarily. And it doesn't necessarily mean plot structure either, you know, for listeners that are gonna say otherwise. But yeah, I think we both had a had a better um, experience reading this than we did reading the last book. Uh, yeah. By a lot. Yeah, <laughs> by a lot. Uh, let us know what you think in the comments, as always. All right, my first question was about, you know, the dedication on the Whitman quote. I didn't really look up who this was, but it says, For Lucian, and then the Whitman quote, I am the man, I suffered, I was there. What do we think? Do we know what this is from? Uh, I don't. Well, you know, we have men, we have suffering, we have being there, happening. It all really comes together here. I am curious to know. Imagine it's from one of Whitman's, like, two major books. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I guess the themes of suffering and things like that. Uh, who was there? I lived it, etc. Yeah, so I guess it, it comes fits. from Leaves of Grass. All right. Uh, yeah. Makes sense. Let's see. Yeah. So there's some allusion to, you know, Whitman leaves of grass, the everyman. Yeah. And Baldwin has a famous quote about like suffering where he says, you think your suffering is uh, unique and then you read and learn that it's extremely common, you know, something like that. I'm paraphrasing. But yeah, and I think Baldwin understood that very clearly. This is one of the major appeals of books in general. Listeners to this podcast probably feel the same way. So, yeah, you know, you're always, oh, it's uniquely my suffering. But then you read a few books from 200 years ago and you're like, oh, actually, (laughs) every human being feels this. (laughs) Like every single person on earth feels this. Uh, But yeah, and then my first question about this before we even get to text is, yeah, is this a coming of age story? Because he's a little bit older. Like, he's, like, clearly the main character is, like, in his 20s, something like that. Yeah, but I think it still is that 
in some way. I mean, I still read it a lot like a coming of age story with this person who doesn't really like know who they are and they're kind of a little bit lost, even, you know, if they don't quite realize it immediately. So, yeah, I would still describe it as a coming of age story where he's, you know, we have a character who's like learning who they are in the world. Yeah, and then the restrictions on that too, right? So this is 1956 is when the book was published, based around that time. But uh, And as we all know, in 1956, if you were openly gay, uh, it wasn't a good time for you, <laughs> right? Like, it was not yeah. uh, a welcoming uh, situation. It's not okay to be gay. Yeah. <laughs> you had... And I guess that's why this book is so famous, because it really does capture the idea of struggling between, you know, the reality and then the projection of what you want the world to see kind of thing. But yeah, I, I, I guess I kept wanting to put this in like a coming of age category, but like we said, it's not quite there, but it could be, you know, you can make the argument. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm fine with saying that because I guess he does learn some lessons eventually by the end. Maybe you the could epigraph say. is section 33 of Song of Myself, by the way. I understand the large hearts of heroes, the courage of present times and all times. How the skipper saw the crowded and rudderless wreck of the steamship and how death chasing it up and down the storm. How he knuckled, how he knuckled tight and gave not back an inch and was faithful of days and faithful of nights. Blah, 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 blah. How the silent old-faced infants and the lifted sick and the happy or and that sharp lipped unshaved men all this i swallow it tastes good i like it well it becomes mine i am the man i suffered i was there yeah and the reason i say this is kind of a coming of age story you can make a good argument that it is on page 16 the quote like what i highlighted is when he's talking about his father's attitude um and this is second paragraph on page 16, kind of in the middle. It says, and then again, I was undergoing with my father with the very young inevitably, inev with the very young inevitably undergo with their elders. I was beginning to judge him and the very harshness of this judgment, which broke my heart revealed, though I could not have said it then, how much I had loved him, how that love along with my innocence was dying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there, and it's like, it's not so much like a teen coming of age. This is like an older adult coming of age kind of thing. Yeah, it's still the death of innocence, right? Yeah. Which is kind of what coming of age really is. Right. And all that good stuff. And really the first chapter is about 20 pages of backstory with that. So we start learning about this backstory. Yeah. And there's like a lot of talk of the sort of, I mean, later in the... Oh, God, what are we talking about here? Um, I wanted to be his son. Yeah, I, I did not want to be his buddy. I wanted to be his son. What passed between us as masculine candor exhausted and appalled me. There, There's a lot of, like, sort of judgment of this idea of, like, masculinity and sort of being, in turns, disgusted by it and then attracted to it. Yeah. Which creates an interesting uh, interplay. Yeah, I did notice that when he was when he when he calls Giovanni fairy like at the end there, when he's like disgusted by like his behavior or whatever after yeah. they've like been separated. Changes. Yeah. Like um 
And yeah. I mean, earlier than that, he like begins to sort of transform in his eyes. Like he starts to see him as an uglier person. Mm. Right. But then also loves him, even though he's uglier kind of thing. But yeah, we get a bunch of backstory. And then in like page 23, I think is when we learned that Giovanni dies at the end. Uh, I think you're right. Yeah. Wait, no, maybe even earlier than that. Hang on. I think it might be because I think I knew like really early on that he was going to die and that it was by guillotine. And I was like, what is going on? When I was reading through, I picked it up on page 23 when it's kind of almost like a because this is like kind of a, a constant back and forth where we go in and out. Oh, it's page five. Of the um, narration. Last sentence. Okay. Yeah. And Giovanni would not be about to perish sometime between this night and this morning on the guillotine. Yeah. So page five. So I missed that on page five, or at least I didn't mark it. But there is like this kind of mystery, like kind of almost mystery novel pull through, right? Where we kind of learn early on that Giovanni is going to die. And I marked on page 23, uh, I thought for a long while that he, with his big apartment, his well-meaning promises, his whiskey, his marijuana, his orgies, had helped to kill Giovanni, as indeed perhaps he did, perhaps he had. But Jacquise's hands are certainly no bloodier than mine. So we kind of have this almost, I compare it to like a murder mystery kind of setup, where it's like it makes you kind of keep going through because you're like, you know, the mystery's laid out. You see like the kind of, you know that this character Giovanni is going to die and then you're like oh okay well how does this happen and it kind of sets up the little bit of pull through at least structurally so for all the people that are obsessed with structure out there right not just in terms of like stylistic pulling a reader through the book like we said earlier but like you could argue this structurally is set up almost murder mystery pull the reader through the book right like get the hook in and then like kind of start like reeling it in all that good stuff. A lot of great phrases and lines. Yeah. We also get Jacques, who's like a fun and interesting character. And just sort of his companion through a lot of this. Even though we know that Giovanni is going to ultimately be. But we learn in this chapter that Jacques is sort of the one who pushes them together, almost. In a way. Yeah, and it, they describe it as like a lot of characters that are on the down low, right? Like Jacques, Giovanni. Oh, I forget the what's the narrator's name. I can't even remember because the narrator David. Name, David, yeah, is barely. I remember mentioned. because I was looking for it and yeah. I like made note of it as soon as I found it. I was like, okay, David is our guy. Right. Yeah, and it's told from David's perspective, so you really you really don't hear his name very often because yeah, he's I routinely forgot but... had to remind myself what his name was. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't like it affects the story or anything because you're just reading the narration and then when like they refer to his name, you're like, oh, his name's David. Yeah, but it would be kind of jarring every once in a while where I'd be like, oh, right. That's who we're talking about. But yeah, it's also here that we sort of start to learn maybe like some mysterious details and we don't know what's going on here, but we get Jacques saying, I wonder why he did it. Uh, why he didn't ask his friends for help. He looked at me. We both knew that the last time Giovanni had asked Jacques for money, Jacques had refused. I said nothing. They say he had started taking opium, Jacques said. 
that he needed the money for opium. Did you hear that? So we sort of get this little bit of conjecture as to why Giovanni has committed some kind of crime for which he will be beheaded, but we don't know what. And I think that does make for like a fun and interesting setup. Yeah, it's almost murder mystery like kind of setup, which is a good. St- like I like when literary writers use elements of the kind of what we would call pop or blur that line a little bit, like use that murder mystery structure to set up intrigue while still doing the kind of high-minded literary thing. I think that's a good technique, and, and no doubt Baldwin understood that. Like, sure, he, like I said, I, I knew he was friends with, like, Chester Himes and all that. Like, no doubt he was reading those guys growing up and, like, liked it, like, loved it. You know, those are just, some of those books are just, you just can't resist oh, yeah. because they're just good murder mystery type thing. But it's also much more mysterious because we don't even know what, Giovanni has done at this point right like we don't know what crime he's committed we just know that he's done something that's big enough to get him executed so it's interesting to me because it teases the fact like okay we know that Giovanni is going to die it's James Baldwin so I don't expect some like heroic swooping in and saving him at the end right (laughs) or because I guess also because it's literary (laughs) I don't expect that really um, it wouldn't have worked as well if there but was then like we some also, hero. Yeah. yeah, but then we also, like, like we know he's going to die. We don't have anything. Like, we don't know that he has committed a murder, for instance. So it doesn't have that same kind of tension of, like, a murder mystery where you're going into it thinking, like, oh, well, who's going to... Who are we exploring as a suspect, Right. And then the narrator himself is conflicted, too. So, like, as we go through the book, you learn, like, he loves Giovanni, and then he starts to question, like, well, maybe he never knew Giovanni, or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, it uh, it, it only adds to it. Like, that's just, like, another layer, I think, at least from, like, reading it, I felt it a little bit. Yeah, but we only get it in those little bits of narration in between these sort of flashbacks to his time with Giovanni where he was like, and now we're waiting for Giovanni to meet his death over and over <laughs> again. We sort of get that without any, uh, you know, that's all I say. Like, it, I can't decide other than the sort of back and forth between present and past that it helps to create. I'm not sure what knowing giovanni is going to die actually does for me in terms Uh, of entertainment like i don't know that it heightens it it certainly did at the beginning i'm not sure that it did at the end yeah well because you kind of forget about it well yeah that's what i mean like it doesn't it's not important until it happens or it's only important in terms of the reflection that happens so maybe that's what it's actually doing it's that reflection piece that's really important there in the bits of narration in between uh, these flashbacks to his time with Giovanni. What do we think of the French? The use of French throughout it? Yeah. Generally? I mean, I think it makes sense to see it there. I would be surprised not to see it there. They fucking live there. They've been living there ostensibly for some time, you know. You'd kind of expect them to have some relationship to the language 
Yeah, and it's set up and it's written in this way, right? Like when you see very kind of classic literature style where you see the French and you don't really get translations for it at all. It just kind of flows within the English text. And it's usually always people speaking when the French comes in. It's usually always characters like speaking to one another or to the narrator, <clears throat> David. And uh, I gotta be honest, I didn't understand a lot of it. Uh, if you don't speak French, there are some that you can understand if you know a little. Like, I know very little, and I could like follow some of it, but you know, I don't have a very yeah, me too. But it's also so minimal that it doesn't take you that. No, it, it doesn't, doesn't take you out yeah. of the book that much, whether or not you choose to look it up. But even if you do, I don't think it ruins. Like it doesn't take you out of the moment of the book too much. Yeah, and just, I, I liked that kind of classical style. And granted, this was published in 56, right? So more writers were doing that. Like, even when I read, um, like, I just read all of Raymond Chandler's stuff. And, you know, he's set in Southern California, so there's a lot of, like, Spanish and stuff like that being spoken uh, in various circumstances in those kind of, you know, like, pop murder mystery books, uh, detective fiction type things. It was just something that was like accepted, like we didn't have to understand. I guess it's still used today, right? People still do that, but yeah, it doesn't take you out. And since it is set in Paris, it it does. I guess you could help say it helps fit like the scene, the setting, the realism. You know, pick your uh, descriptor there. It does work within the book, and it, and it's and it does kind of move a little seamlessly. Like even if you don't understand the French, you can move along with the story, and it like keeps doesn't it doesn't you don't feel like you missed anything. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Classic high-minded shit. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of like forbidden love, mm-hmm. because obviously it's a huge deal in this. And, like, when we first get the idea that he's, like, kind of, like, the first time he bangs Giovanni in uh, page 64, chapter 3 of part 1, uh, bottom of the first paragraph on page 64, just the description, he pulled me against him, putting himself into my arms as though he were giving me, as he pulled me against him, putting himself into my arms as though he were giving me himself to carry, and slowly pulled me down with him to that bed, with everything in me screaming no, yet the sum of me sighed yes. And then that just ends the scene, so it's like not like this, like, you know, you know, uh, like kind of like, it's not like pornographic or like super like describing the sex scene, it just gives us the more emotional aspect of it. Yeah, and we had seen, um, like, you know, a sexual interaction between him and another man. Well, he says a boy, like, very, very early on. I think maybe in the first chapter where he finds himself in bed with a boy named Joey. And um, that becomes, like, a point of a lot of shame. Yeah, and I mean, I guess that was a very common thing. Like, I, you know, I was not alive during that time, but even, like, you know, friends or people that I know from, even in, like, the 80s or the 70s and stuff, like, that's a very common experience where it was, like, you know, you kind of, like, have sex with a boy and you're kind of like, well, what is this? Like, <laughs> I'm in love with this guy. And, you know, just, like, kind of coming-of-age aspect where you're like, oh, what is this? Like, you know... 
I don't know what this is. Am I gay? Am I in yeah. love with this boy? Like kind of thing. And it's just a very common thing. So uh, another reason why this book, I think, is held up like it is and like is canonized like it is like most of Baldwin's stuff is because it is this kind of he's capturing something right like he's capturing something real no doubt well and maybe I think also it's like why he's you know we have a character who's so obsessed with how he makes decisions is this something that's just happening to me or am I you know actively making a decision in it like in chapter one I know I'm sort of going backwards here Fuck it, no rules, dude. He says, you know, he says the vision I gave my father of my life was not exactly the vision in which I myself most desperately needed to believe. <laughs> or I am, or I was, one of those people who pride themselves on their willpower, on the ability to make it a, a decision and carry it through. This virtue, like most virtues, is ambiguity itself. <sighs> People who believe lines. that they are strong-willed and the masters of their destiny can only continue to believe this by becoming specialists in self-deception. goes on. Their decisions are not really decisions at all. A real decision makes one humble. One knows that it is at the mercy of more things than can be named, but elaborate systems of evasion, of illusion, designed to make themselves and the world appear to be what they and the world are not. This is certainly what my decision made so long ago in Joey's bed came to. I had decided to allow no room in the universe for something which shamed and frightened me. I succeeded very well. Um, yeah, I highlighted that same part about the decisions just because that was just such a great little line there. Their decisions are not really decisions at all. Yeah, well, and kind it's of. sort of pointing out, you know, exactly what you know, much of his character flaw throughout this book or what he maybe would see as his own character flaw. I'm not sure how much of a true flaw it is. Well, I think it is actually, but like, you know, we can sort of get there as we go. But yeah, I think throughout the book, what we see is all of these passages where he's like encountering, uh, Giovanni. And they're all told from like a memory perspective. Like he's remembering yeah. things. And then he kind of quite, doesn't quite remember he's like oh, i can't quite remember what started it you know like what what set him off that night but i remember what happened after kind of uh and i did have a question about that in terms of like since most of this book is like the narrator telling us like jumping back and forth into what we would consider present time in paris to like past memories like we kind of weave in and out of that pretty seamlessly the way Baldwin does it here uh, in terms of craft but then just in terms of like the narration everything kind of comes from memory and I had a question just like you know what does that do for the book having like a lot of stuff come from memory what, you know it's an interesting way to do this uh, some it's a it's a hard way to tell a story a lot of times uh, you know what does it do for the story how does it affect the reader etc you know whatever what do you think well, yeah well it's interesting because you don't feel like you're in a memory when you're in it, right? And that's so often the case. Um, so you forget the possibility that, you know, there are things that might be misremembered. And I never, I always wonder if that intention is there. I feel like if it is, it's usually an obvious discrepancy between, you know, who the narrator actually is and the story as they're telling it. Um, I didn't see that quite as much here with the exception of like, oh, you know, I couldn't, I was powerless to make this decision. I was allowing this to happen to me. 
it was decided for me. Fate sort of just decided this for me, right? Um, that that's I would say is like the one, yeah, yeah wants that's, us to think, yeah. right? That's the one discrepancy I think. But um, yeah, I think it's done really effectively. I think it's when we come back to these other moments, because we are, I would say, mostly living in the memories, right? right. For yeah. the bulk of the book. That's what I mean. Like it's a, and I just mean like we could talk about it technique wise, how it affects the reader. We could talk about yeah, it from a craft I mean, perspective. There's so many ways to tackle that. On like, page yeah. 64 was where I noted like right after they have that, you know, their first sort of when they have sex for the first time or. Right. Same. That's, that's where I marked it too. Yeah. Yeah. And Which, I said, oh, okay, we're coming back to the present tense now and there's like a little bit of a section break right there's an extra space and we start a new paragraph and so like yeah yeah, and there was that indication it comes that it starts here in the south of france it does not often snow yeah and it's interesting that it's around the same place that we both felt that like around page 64 Mm -hmm. because that's where i felt it too is like oh you know a lot of memory telling this it's an interesting way to do it and yeah, I mean, and that's pretty late in the game to be like figuring that out too. Oh, it's kind of for like, only a hundred seventy-page book. Yeah, yeah, like that's like a quarter of the over a quarter of the way through, basically. Like, uh, but I, I think it, it's telling that you and I both felt it at the same time. Maybe it's just telling about like us and like our tastes and stuff and similarities and like our thinkings about books being so similar to each other, but. I think it maybe speaks more to just, yeah, the craft element of this. Like, it, like uh, clearly that was intentional to make the readers start being intrigued at that point. If both me and Sophie read this separately and then came together to talk about it, like both felt the same thing at the same spot. Well, I would say that's a successful technique. Yeah, use, I was going to say, or, I think yeah. it succeeded, right? Right, exactly, yeah. Because, like, I didn't question it after that. I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. So, like, we first went back in time to, like, meet Giovanni, right? That's what just happened. And that could just be like a memory, right? He's just telling us this one memory, but then and this it's is like where the first I think time he saw him, and like yeah. yeah. And this is where we sort of learn: okay, we're moving back and forth, like we're going to be constantly shifting. Yeah, and I think it like helps frame it for the reader too. So if we're moving even beyond structural stuff that we both said worked, it's to like help orient the reader into the style of going back and forth sometimes in the same chapter, because I guess we didn't even get into it. You know, this is separated into parts, right? Like part one, part two, part three. And then each of those parts has like, you know, chapters. And then within those chapters, we're moving back and forth between time. Like Sophie said, with like kind of white space gaps, things that would indicate like a shift, a change of scene in the novel, you know, typical novel structure. Uh, But it just kind of helps orient the reader even more towards this kind of relayed memories mixed with like current Pratt, like what's happening in the present day. And uh, yeah, it was well done. It is interesting. There's like this part where we shift just before that, even that I'm just realizing now. What part? Uh, page 52 to 53, where I guess, why are we in present tense here? What just happened? It starts even earlier. I think it starts the whole chapter. Yeah. Right? But that, yeah, there's a lot of moments in present tense here. So, and maybe that's when it feels like the most. How do you say like that name in French? Guillaume. Guillaume. So Guillaume. Like William. It's the, yeah, it's French William. So, and that's like, 
it's continuing from chapter three. It's continuing from the story in chapter two where he meets Giovanni in the bar. Giovanni's bartending at this bar that is on the down low, kind of a gay bar, right? Like before yeah. there were gay and bars. He, it's like, Guillaume's bar. Yeah. So he would purposely hire, you know, like young, attractive boys to bartend like Giovanni type thing. And we learn later that he like seriously abuses them and like, you know, treats them like shit, etc. Like doesn't pay them. Uh, and then just brings and, a new one. And we have Jacques as sort of um, David's wingman here, right? Uh, yeah. Where sure. he... Um, he like introduces him to like all the, the scene in Paris, essentially. Yeah, well, and he says, you know... Um, well, first, David says, I don't understand him, I said at last. I don't know what his friendship means. I don't know what he means by friendship. Jacques laughed. You don't know what he means by friendship, but you have the feeling it may not be safe. You are afraid it may change you. What kind of friendships have you had? I said nothing. Or for that matter, he continued, what kind of love affairs? I was silent for so long that he teased me, saying, come out, come out, wherever you are. And I grinned, feeling chilled. Love him, said Jacques, with vehemence. Love him and let him love you. Do you think anything else under heaven really matters? Only five minutes, I assure you. Only five minutes, and most of that in Hellas, in the dark. And if you think of them as dirty, then they will be dirty. They will be dirty because you will be giving nothing. You will be despising your flesh and his. Yeah, I mean, he sort of goes on this whole sort of spiel that he gives David, sort of about, like, listen, you got to... You got to do your thing. You have to let this happen because clearly this is the most in love with somebody you have felt. I mean, granted, this is like they've just met each other. So it's kind of interesting because it's just like it's fast, right? Yeah. Well, then this is also something that a lot of writers, a lot of gay male writers at the time wrote about Gore Vidal. I mean, he famously wrote essays about this kind of thing, like this kind of weird dynamic. You have to be on the down low, but then you also like indulge, you know, you want to indulge your sexual desires, but then like there's a lot of shame because of the cultural stuff like around it, you know, the shunning, like the stuff that we look Mm -hmm. at as silly today, but like back then, I mean, it would ruin your life. Like if you, you know, all this stuff came out like, uh, so anybody's interested can look that stuff up. It's just, it, you know, it's a, I mean, what a rich topic for a novel. I mean, what a, like, yeah. like, you could explore this from so many different angles and Baldwin chooses this one. It works. We've already yeah, said that. Yeah, and in that, so many but... different locations and so many different cultures, like in so many and different it's ways. it's fitting that it's Paris at that time, right? Because like Paris, like this was what was happening in the United States, right? All the artists, this is, this was a trend in the modernist era, but this was happening in the fifties, right? All the artists, even like the pop writers, I I like Patricia Highsmith listeners will know. I read a lot of her books. She was moving to Paris and Italy at this time, like living in Paris. I mean, sorry, living in Paris and Rome, you know, France and Italy at this time. Why? Because the fucking red scare was happening. Like if you were an artist and you were like, like espousing some like cool new idea or like, capturing something real about humanity like you were at risk in the united states essentially at that point for this brief for those few years that the red scare like shit was happening like right and And then there's the angle of just like you know just like the modernist said well like paris is just more chic like it's just more chic than any u.s city or something so all the modernists would move there for that like kind of 
rich yeah, and it cultural was much more heritage. Acceptable. Right. Yeah. Um, and kind of a libertine. Yeah, yeah, but we do get all of these moments though, where David like has an encounter with Giovanni, and then is like, "I need to go home, not home he's, to like his apartment, but like home to the U.S." He's right? Like t- he's too horny, dude. He's yeah. like too horny. <laughs> he's like, "Oh God." He's too horned up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very common uh, problem for young men. Uh. <laughs> I looked at Giovanni's face, which did not help me. He belonged to this strange city, which did not belong to me. I began to see that while what was happening to me was not so strange as it would have comforted me to believe, yet it was strange beyond belief. Um, That's an interesting point, dude. Like the fact that he's tying like the Giovanni belongs to the city and I don't like the kind of Paris and also being tied into saying, it. This is happening to me. Right. right. What, yeah. What yeah. Is happening to me. And there is also like this sense of sort of confusion about it. And it's clear also that he is familiar with his own desire, at least toward men. Right. Um, Would you say he's afraid of it? his desire Um, or just ashamed maybe like i I, I don't know i think there's i think there's both i think i mean obviously it's purposeful to be a little bit like of both yeah like it's purposeful like a a very that's what makes good drama right a conflicting thing from the main character or several characters well and he also doesn't he doesn't want to take responsibility for it either and on some level that makes sense right it's not his fault you know that he is who he is and that he's attracted to whom he's attracted to it's just um you know, and probably as a product of like his, the house he was raised in and the culture that he was in is now like has all of these like negative feelings. And obviously that still exists among the Parisians that we meet too, some of whom are not actually true like Paris born Parisians, right? They're not even necessarily French, at Wait. least not by birth. What? Parisians? Yeah. People of Paris. Oh, is that a thing? Like, yeah, Parisian. I guess that makes sense that, well, you're not really from here, so you moved here, so you can never be. Like, you know, I guess that right. happens everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you're not. Well, a, yeah. I mean, he talks about some of that, like, where you can tell which who's the American and who is, you know, actually French. Yeah. Right. Doesn't he, like, sort of allude to that in places? And, like, at some point, they start getting into fights about, like, even Giovanni calls him out for being, like, so American. Yeah, and I think yeah, with Jacques, all his attitude. Jacques is uh says that a few times to him. Yeah, like, and Oh, you're just Jacques, too American, you know, you're worrying like an American, like Isn't Jacques also like American, at least to some degree, but maybe like born in a different country? One of the characters is. And Giovanni so, is actually know. Italian. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I guess Giovanni yeah. is like an Italian name. Yeah, Giovanni. Yeah, so it's just like <laughs> no one here is actually where they originated from. But like, they all want to pretend to like be a part of it. Like, kind of, yeah. And, but yeah, oh, he he does go on to say in the same little piece, or maybe it's not the same little what piece. Page? Yeah, yeah, it's on page sixty-two. This is right before they made love that first time. Right. Um, it's that first long paragraph on 62. It, it was not really so strange. So this is right after where I left off. It was not really so strange, so unprecedented. The voices deep within me boomed, for shame, for shame, that I should be so abruptly, so hideously entangled with a boy. What a, sh- what, 
was strange was that this was but one tiny aspect of the dreadful human tangle occurring everywhere without end forever. So he is also very clearly like referring to his own shame. Yeah. And then he starts to like blame Giovanni. Like I have marked like, uh, he blames Giovanni. So then you get this kind of conflicted feelings of like hatred and love for Giovanni at bottom of page 84. Uh, with this fearful imitation, there opened in me a hatred for Giovanni, which was as powerful as my love and which was nourished by the same roots kind of thing. And he blames Giovanni for awakening these feelings in him. So in the paragraph right before that, he says, the beast which Giovanni had awakened in me would never go to sleep again. But one day I would not be with Giovanni anymore. And would I then, like all the others, find myself turning and following all kinds of boys down God knows what dark avenues into what dark places? Yeah, and this is all because he's having like a really pleasurable time with him too. Like right before <laughs> yeah. that, this is the scene where he was like one of his sort of most, um, I guess, cherished memories was like a moment when there on a walk like throwing cherry pits at each other and he sort of describes it as being really childish and it feels like he's almost in some way like judging them as these like two little boys who are just sort of dicking around right and this is like he says we are both insufferably childish and high-spirited that afternoon and the spectacle we presented two grown men jostling each other on the wide sidewalk and aiming the cherry pits as though they were spitballs into each other's faces must have been outrageous and i realized that such childishness was fantastic at my age and the happiness out of which it sprang yet more so for that moment i really loved giovanni who had never seemed more beautiful than he was that afternoon. And if you haven't read this listeners, I mean, like it's not necessarily like, it's not a happy ending. Like this isn't like a happy kind of love story book, even though there's elements of love story. Like, I, I guess we'll get to that at the end there, but in terms of like the struggle that the main character has, isn't really resolved at the end. Like it's kind of still there, like in this kind of, really weird confused you know everything that comes with it kind of yeah well and i mean it's followed up by this really strange moment and watching his face i realized that it meant so much to me that i could make his face so bright i saw that i might be willing to give a great deal not to lose that power and i felt myself flow toward him as a river rushes when the ice breaks up yet at that very moment there passed between us on the pavement another boy a stranger and I invested him at once with Giovanni's beauty. And what I felt for Giovanni, I also felt for him. The lust. Or the love of, like, life and beauty, right? It's just, like, his perspective has shifted in this, has shifted, like, in this moment. And it's not, I don't know if it's, like, just about Giovanni or if it's more about just, like, embracing this moment with him that opens him up to that. And I haven't read much Baldwin. Like you said, I've read the stuff they make, like assign you an undergrad and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, going to meet the man. No, that's not him. Mm-hmm. That's, that's him. him. Yeah. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And he he doesn't necessarily write about like gay love stories in all of his stuff. Like this is one that does. And 
Oh, well, hang on to that with going to meet the man. It's pretty, there is some pretty interesting stuff there. Yeah. So pretty violent. So, you know, for listeners, read with caution, but a very good Uh. read. Um, It's also really about like race in the U.S. Right. Um, But. And that's like the versatility of Baldwin where he writes that, he writes about sexuality, and then he writes books that don't contain any of those elements. He writes about emotions in a way that is like extremely complex and like very full and very interesting. Even in that same paragraph I was just reading, he says that, you know, Giovanni starts laughing and it turns into a scene from a nightmare. Right. And that's how we end up at the part you were pointing out. Um, He says that he feels sorrow and shame and panic and bitterness. And then um, we get to the beast, which Giovanni had awakened in him. Right. Uh, he calls it a beast. And this is when his hatred begins for Giovanni in the same moment that he most finds him beautiful. I mean, what like what do we make of that? I mean, human. I mean, it's very yeah, human. Yeah, I think I it's mean... like something that we can't fully answer. I think right. we're, I'm still wrestling with what it means, but it does feel like this adequately complex sort of emotional entanglement that he can't quite identify the source and, of. And there's a universal aspect to it too. Like even though it's about like kind of a homosexual relationship, it's not like there's still a universality to it, which is what Baldwin's so great at capturing in a lot of his stuff. But yeah, the hatred and love, that's what I mean, like a very kind of universal thing that a lot of people feel you know, which was nourished by the same roots, like this kind of, I mean, it's a meme now, right? Love, love, hate relationship. Like, yeah, I have a love, hate relationship with ice cream or something. I mean, you know, whatever the fuck people are saying, but it's real. It's there. Everybody feels it. What uh, do we think about like when he has sex with Sue? (laughs) Hang on. Let me find my note on that because... (laughs) That's fun. That's what I was thinking, because like, it's an interesting scene, and it's an interesting choice for Baldwin to show us the struggle, right? So like, he has sex with this woman, Sue, who's kind of like a girl around town that everybody knows. and like. Yeah, and when is this happening? Just to orient us in time. Uh, chapter 2, part 2. So part 2, chapter 2 yeah, and part okay. 2. It's around page like 98 or so, I think. So does every chapter start with uh, something about, no, not every chapter, but there are a few chapters in a row that start with how he remembers that room. He refers to Giovanni's room or that room. What page did you say we were on? I didn't mark the page exactly, but I think it's that chapter starts on page 85 and then it just kind of uh, flows through there when he's just like, at a cafe, he's kind of angry with Giovanni at that time, like we said, because in the previous chapter, like we just talked about, he's like, oh, this love-hate thing, I kind of hate him, but I love him. And then he does this weird thing where he's, like, trying to, like, where he has sex with this woman, Sue, to, like, I don't know, prove something to himself, or... I don't know, I mean, what would what would you say? 
prove he isn't gay or to prove that he is like not confused or not struggling or just for something to do. Damn, I'm so pissed. Oh, it's okay. I see it now. Puffy Sue, 95 and 97, yeah. 200. <laughs> Puffy Sue. Puffy Sue, dude. And this is after uh, we get some letters from uh, David's father. We get a letter from David's fiance. So he's also engaged to a woman yeah. who is currently in Spain. At, you know, in the present moment, and I guess during his time with Giovanni as well. And Sue is coming, or not Sue, um, his fiance is coming back. But uh, so he talks about, you know, his fiance is coming back. Now she would be coming back, and my life with Giovanni would be finished. It would be something that had happened to me once. So again, it's just something that happened to him. He is not really an agent in it. It'd be something that happened to many men once. So it's just like, whatever. This is like, you know, this happens to men. It's a part of coming of age. We all experiment. Um, I paid for my drink and got up and walked across the river. Uh, he said, he, I felt elated. But then the face that glowed insistently before me was not her face, but his. I was beginning to wonder how he would take my news. I did not think he would fight me. I was afraid of what I would see in his face. I was afraid of the pain I would see there. But even then, this was not my real fear. My real fear was buried and driving me to uh, Montparnasse to look up pronunciation. And he kind of like convinces Sue to like take him home with her. I think it's like Montparnasse. It's almost like a... Uh... Like a pity fuck. Yeah. Pity sex. He says, I wanted to find a girl, any girl at all. And like I said, it's clearly a deliberate choice because we see this scene and he's not saying that he's doing it for any particular reason, but like Baldwin is showing us the scene so that we can just be like, oh, what do we take from this, you know? The person who appeared and whom I did not know very well was a girl named Sue, blonde and rather puffy, with the quality, in spite of the fact that she was not pretty, of the girls who are selected each year to be Miss Rheingold. She wore her curly blonde hair cut very short. She had small breasts and a big behind, and in order, no doubt, to indicate to the world how little she cared for her appearance or sensuality, she almost always wore tight blue jeans. Okay, so the this is how the world has changed, everyone. Uh, what, the blue jeans? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I did laugh a little bit that he called her rather puffy. Yeah, puffy. What What is that describing, we think? I mean, it's just like, I mean, I picture her face puffy as being face. like round. A little rotund. Maybe someone who drinks and just is puffy. Puffy. You know? Puff, puff, puffy. And then he says, the moment she appeared, I began mentally to take off her clothes. Um, right and that's so, kind yeah. of like conflicting right so you yeah know, it's not so simple either yeah well and throughout this he's like i feel like i'm doing something cruel because essentially he knows that he's like manipulating her right to some degree just to get like sex that he doesn't you know he doesn't have any care for her really doesn't even really have any care for the sex with her either like 
yeah, he just kind of gets through it, right? Something. I guess this is supposed to set up for when he has sex with um, what's her name, his fiance, Halea. Yeah, Hella. Hella. Maybe that's the same thing. So it's yeah, supposed to the whole show time he's this. like, I tried not to think. <laughs> you know. So it's clear that he like doesn't actually want this. He's trying to prove something to himself here. He's but he like, wasn't I'm... like, yeah, disgusted or anything either. Right. So it was like, well, it's not until after that he's like, oh fuck, what am I doing? Like I was trying to sort of break this thing off with Giovanni. I was proving to myself that I was like, moved on from him essentially, right? Because he gets like this burst of energy when he finds out that his fiance is coming back, as though she's like saving him from something, right? She's coming back essentially to rescue him from this mess of a relationship he's created. But then he realizes, so first of all, he says, but I was, I was thinking that what I did with Giovanni could not possibly be more immoral than what I was about to do with Sue. This is on page 99. And then he realizes he, that um, he actually only complicated things more. Now he feels worse because now he's just like added another person that he's you know, slept with to the equation when his fiance is coming back. Right. Isn't that essentially like the gist of, yeah, Sue was not Hella and she did not lessen my terror for what would happen when Hella came. She increased it. She made it more real than it had been before. At the same time, I realized that my performance with Sue was succeeding even too well. And I tried not to despise her for feeling so little what her labor what her laborer felt. I tried not to despise her for feeling so little of what I was feeling in this moment, which is like a very, that also seems like a very complicated emotion. I think this is what Baldwin does really well. And they, he says this, that's something that's just said a lot in the book is it's not real. It feels real. It feels unreal. Like this kind of constant, the narrator seems to constantly be questioning, like, is this even real? Is it's happening? Uh, and I think that's one of the themes too, right? They kind of like being trapped in a body or bodies being some type of restriction that one has to deal with. Yeah. Well, he talks about feeling constricted with her, right? that and like can restricted like constricted with uh his fiance and even you could say giovanni like at parts mm -hmm. where he's just constantly kind of struggling with what this is and this is a short book but like it needs to be short because it's touching on something very like specific you know like a very specific thing and all that good stuff okay what uh and then we have the uh the murder Oh you, yeah. Did you want to hit anything before the murder? Another good line, page 103. I had thought of suicide when I was much younger, as possibly we all have, but then it would have been for revenge. It would have been my way of informing the world how awfully it had made me f it had made me suffer. Great little line I underlined because that was a great little sentence. He does have this line on 92 at the top where he sees this sailor it's right after he gets um, he gets a letter from his father. It's right before he gets the letter from his fiance. He sees a sailor. He seemed somehow younger than I had ever been and blonder and more beautiful, and he wore his masculinity as unequivocally as he wore his skin. 
he made me think of home. Perhaps home is not a place, but simply an irrevocable condition. Right. So I think, you know, this is also like maybe talking about that bodied experience that you were referring to where, you know, not being at home in yourself is like a condition. Right. And also tying that to masculinity here is obviously complicated. Oh, yeah. And he does feel like the sailor sees him. He gave me a look contemptuously lewd and knowing. Let's talk about they have their final sort of fight. And um, I guess David just sort of disappeared to go meet up with Hella. Basically, he makes a decision, right? He makes the decision yeah. to go with the life that you could say maybe his father wanted, but there's part of him that wants it too, and he just decides to kind of go with the play it straight thing, like marry this girl he's engaged to, uh, move back to the States, and do the whole, you know, picket fence thing or whatever. And it's, and you know, they kind of, he sets it up in the book so that it is kind of like, he's doing that to not spite Giovanni, but to maybe spite himself, like chastising himself. What? Why he breaks it off with him? Yeah, well, he says he breaks it off with him because he's like, well, I have this fiance and she's back, etc. But, uh. You know, that I think Baldwin purposely leaves that a little open-ended in terms of why David chooses to do that. Why he chooses that life. Yeah. Um, or you could say, or yeah, chooses the closeted life or whatever it is. Not like there were a lot of options at the time. Like, Well, yeah, I mean, he also, like, I think Giovanni sort of presents him with, like, why can't you live both lives? Like, you're not going to be with your wife all the time. What are you, does she have to know absolutely everyone you see and everywhere you go? Like, how involved does she have to be in every single moment of your life? And he was like, she's, she's going to be my wife. Like, this is going to be the life that I have. And that's that. The murder the murder comes late because it's kind of towards the end there page 148 it's it's right at the end pretty much where we just find out that uh it's like the last sentence right um it was certainly not more than a week after this um we get on page 148 that guillaume was found dead in the private quarters above his bar strangled with the sash of his dressing gown so here we have the implication, right? We know that this is the crime that Giovanni has committed. And then the very next line in uh, uh, chapter five is, it was a terrific scandal. Yeah. <laughs> it was a terrific scandal. Yeah, strangled to death in a dressing ground by the sash of his dressing gown. So, I mean, there's implied, like, some type of abuse. There's implied sexual relationships between... Giovanni and a couple of these men that keep popping up like Jack uh, Jacques yeah we get the sense that uh, Giovanni has turned Guillaume down a number of times but then also I think isn't that part of why like 
uh, Giovanni loses the job to begin with. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he had been propositioned and he declined. Um, or like they make it like seem like it was kind of, you know, been propositioned numerous times. Maybe a few of those times he accepted and then a few of those times he didn't kind of thing. And, you know, very kind of messy, not so clear cut, <clears throat> etc. Which adds to the drama. But then we finally get this, okay, here's the murder, here's the thing that's going to make Giovanni go down. But And we've already gotten things about how, like, when David was avoiding him and pretending that he was going to marry this girl, um, you know, running into Giovanni, seeing Giovanni, and, like, being like, he's not the person that I loved any longer. Like, he's, like, a different person now. Oh, yeah, and isn't... I mean, how long a period of time are we in just for sort of the present tense of the novel like just for when we're in the moments where we're in um david's present time like how like like from the beginning hang on you mean like the amount of the novel and sometime between so on page five sometime between this night and this morning he's gonna die on the guillotine right so it's really only like a max of 24 hours that he's telling the story in. Oh, oh yeah. Right. I guess, yeah, from the narration aspect, but then we get, you know, stories spanning his entire life, essentially. Well, but if we're talking like, about the main the overall plot. Of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Which we assume, I guess, is probably only weeks or months. Uh, six months, roughly, or something like that. Because yeah, it's yeah, like. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's like falling on a few hard times. He's borrowing money from these people he knows. Uh, but it, we're saying it's like this isn't happening over the course of years, right? Well, I guess um, it did. Because it's not like there's exact timelines, but like. Well, when... I don't get that sense because like his fiance is like traveling also, right? Right. They're in Spain. I didn't get the sense that this was happening over a really long period of time. Like, it happened pretty quickly. Yeah, not like a long period of time, but, yeah. Like, um, but not, like, just two days or anything. No, not two days, but definitely at least weeks, but not years, for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. I thought... Know... Yeah, go ahead. I thought the murder was a little lackluster when it happened there, maybe because we'd already knew that, like, this was going to start happening. Like, it's hinted at throughout the book. Uh, I guess it's well, fitting... Well, we don't see it. Right? Yeah. We don't see it happen. And I guess it's fitting that it comes, you know, at the last, like, 20 pages. And it's so withheld, right? Like, yeah. And I think that's part of what makes it feel flat to us is that, you know, you talk about, like, this sort of murder mystery setup, and I sort of... I, I talked about this. You know, it's not truly... Like in the same style because we don't have a clear murder that we know of yet at that point in the book We don't have people that we're suspicious of we know who's committed a crime. We don't know what the crime is That's the only mystery And then it's just like well, we just kind of find out that a murder happens It's we're not shocked by it when it does and there's also this thing in us that I think when we know that when you sort of crave that sort of mystery, especially like a murder mystery kind of ending, you're craving 
if I'm totally honest, the sensationalist inside of me just like wants to see something kind of gross happen, like something yeah. kind of fucked up. Um, or a reveal of some kind, just to simplify it. I guess that's when you have people start talking about like satisfying, like satisfying endings or something. Not that you have to be satisfied, but like. It doesn't feel like shocking in any way how it yeah. happens. There's nothing, which it doesn't have to be like shocking. It does, there doesn't have to be a shock factor necessarily. It's just that um, it feels like how would this be different if that hadn't been told to us? If this wasn't a book that started with and here's the problem. Giovanni's going to die. Let me tell you about my brief time with him. If it just started with, let me tell you about my time with Giovanni. Why we're no longer together. Yeah. And like, it does shift away from like, it. it's not like, a, and again, it's not a traditional murder mystery setup where you're expecting the payoff at the end because it does, that's just more of like an intriguing, that's why I asked like, you know, what it does for a reader versus what it does structurally for the story because that's meant more to entice the reader, right? Than it is to give us a full circle kind of satisfying, you find out the solution to the problem or the murder mystery or the mystery. Where it's more about this David character, you know, it's not so much about the murder as it's about David and him being like a peripheral figure in the murder. So it's like, you know, that makes sense that it's not like this big, you know, kind of mis murder mystery setup or mystery setup in a novel, but yeah, I felt it a little lackluster, but you know, by that point there's only like 20 pages left. So you just kind of finish it. Yeah. Um, his fiance catches him having an affair. So we get that moment where it's not quite a coming out, but it's like an acknowledgement between himself and his you know what would have been his fiance in that moment that this can no longer be and like she's like yeah i think i always knew always knew and so did giovanni and so did david really i guess is like the thing uh but then like the themes that i have that i picked up on uh we talked about like the body being trapped in one's body uh victim of circumstance uh uh, fear, fear of one's sexuality, fear of love, even, right? We could even not, we could take all that out of it, like the sexuality stuff out of it, and just fear of love, right? Fear of commitment mm -hmm. kind of thing. Well, yeah, and there's all this stuff of confession, right? Of right. salvation, of God. There's a heavy, heavy religious theme. Um, even, like, at the very end, one of the last pages, right? I look at my sex, my troubling sex, and wonder how it can be redeemed, how I can save it from the knife. The journey to the grave has already begun. The journey to corruption is always already half over. Yet the key to my salvation, which cannot save my body, is hidden in my flesh. Oh. Coming of age aspect, acceptance, um, all these different things. I mean, do you think he means men when he says by my sex? I mean, usually it's referring to, I think of where else I've heard it. Like, I think in Edith Wharton referring to the sexes, right? Yeah, I think he definitely uh, means men, yeah. Yeah, even before that, like, he refers to this dirty world, this dirty body. 
Right. Well, in that case, I think, yeah, could be sexuality, but... Uh, yeah. Well, he's imagining. Um, this is the moment where he's imagining that he's there for Giovanni's death, right? So we're not actually there, but he's telling it to us as if he is. He cannot ask that they let him pause a moment to urinate. All that in a moment will take care of itself. He knows that beyond the door, which one, which comes so deliberately closer, the knife is waiting. That door is the gateway is the gateway he has sought so long out of this dirty world, this dirty body. It's kind of a religious thing too, right? Dirty gods, dirty bodies. kind of. Well, yeah, it's like he sees himself in Giovanni. He sees this yeah. death as his death, and then he sort of conflates it to the death of his sex, right? He sort of makes this, he makes his experience, or he alludes to it as a kind of universal. And I think that goes back to that Whitman quote, right? Who was so, um, you know... He was the everyman while well, he wanted to be the everyman. And he tried to, I think, create, I don't know if I'm using the right word here, but I think, you know, create a character that spoke to something universal. I am the man. I suffered. I was there. I was there. I saw it. I suffered. I am the man. But yeah, I mean, that references, and this is all before the gender studies explosion in the 80s. So yeah, when they, I think in a book published before then, they would always be referring to their sex. Yeah, so I think he's, men, he's sort of coming full circle to that. How can I save us from this suffering, from dying this way, <sighs> in this misery? Right? And we don't get an answer, listeners. Yeah. Life is suffering. And then finally, he just... He drops off the keys to Giovanni's room, locks the door behind him. Yeah, and the last couple of things I had to talk about were like we could hit literary verse pop, uh, Baldwin's legacy. We already talked about the murder mystery stuff, kind of like being just kind of a, a little kind of structural engine more so than like foam. Well, I think yeah, the the other most obvious thing is it's far less focused on the sensational aspect. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, relies too much on well it, it, i mean not that pop doesn't right but it it relies on metaphors that feel more in a literary tradition um or comparisons even they don't have to be metaphors definitely does that is definitely more high-minded definitely has the kind of meandering sort of plot that a lot of literary novels have uh, but it's not devoid of pop elements, which is why the only reason I right. kind of wrote it down in my notes here and be like, what do we think of that? You know, sure, people would disagree with us, but, you know, it's you can't I think it's there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's also I say it doesn't have the same sensationalism, but it's still there. Yeah. And just for the time period. Fifty six. Yeah. Pretty, pretty bold. Um and then my last, yeah, like Baldwin's legacy, you know, how does this book fit into his legacy? Is this one of his more famous books? Um, honestly, I don't know. I didn't really know about it. Um, but I would say it's probably up there. I think it's up there. It's definitely not as um, well-known as Notes of a Native Son or Go Tell It on the Mountain, but I do think it's like a big one. Yeah. 
Yeah, and a lot of his legacy is tied into, you know, he was famous for his civil rights stuff uh, in the 60s, and so this is even pre-that, you know. Uh, not that he wasn't doing anything like that in the 50s, but, you know, the famous debate between him and William F. Buckley, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, he's very much more known for his stuff in the 60s than his stuff in the 50s, so, you know. Yeah, we almost talk about him as a political figure, right? Well, in recent years, yes. Yeah. They've been only focused on that aspect of it. But thats I think that's why that's good. I wanted to kind of read a, this type of book is because it isn't so much. It's like one of the books that doesn't quite fit that kind of legacy that we're pushing now, even though that legacy is a huge part of Baldwin's like overall impact, career, etc. Some could argue it's the most important aspect. Uh, but yeah. You know, I mean, he's pretty famous. I mean, the guy's immortalized. Like, this is canonized. Uh, a lot of his essays, his nonfiction stuff is canonized, like, uh, deservedly so, right? Like, I think very few would argue that he doesn't deserve to be in that realm with everybody else. Yeah, but... I mean, he's fucking phenomenal. Right, he clearly and, does, I mean, yeah. I, again, like, we know him probably, you know, if you've encountered James Baldwin in a class or just on your own, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, like, either one of his short stories or longer works that deals with race and race relations. And that stuff is great too. It's interesting to see a, a book that has nothing to do with that. It was like interesting. I almost felt like, I mean, all of the same um, instincts are there. Like I really only knew going to meet the man. Right. Which That's the is, one they make you read an undergrad and all. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, I remember it being almost graphic yeah. by compared to this, right? Oh, yeah. So it, it's really interesting to think about it um, in terms of the familiar or the, the way that we can be familiar with his style and his, the way that he um, approaches subjects and the way that he approaches the, you know, the thing that always comes to me is like that complexity of the human emotion, right? Um, yeah but also how different um, they can, how differently they can be applied. Yeah. And there's that documentary, like there's basically an advertisement for that documentary. I think when did that come out like 2017, the, uh, the I am not your Negro documentary. Yeah. Uh, there's like an advertisement in the back here. And I think it's like, it, that's like a title of a book or that um, Baldwin never finished, uh, you know, before he died. Um, and then they kind of, you know, this filmmaker turned it into a, a documentary. I actually never watched the documentary, but I heard great things. People were talking about it. Um, yeah. And, and it, it, I think you're right. Like it, it's not separated, but I think that does kind of overshadow some of his more literary ambitions for some of his stuff. Plus, you know, you point that out, like this was in the fifties. I mean, the censorship was bigger in the fifties than it was in the sixties, right? Like, that you had to worry about censorship more as a writer in the 50s, as a filmmaker, like of all these different things, right? Like the kind of like, uh, what is that? The Hayes Code in movies, right? There's like uh, the FCC um, restricting people's language, certain stories, certain things you could put into, but like it was all restricted. And in the 60s, it was a little, every, that lightened up more. So Baldwin could go deeper into like the controversial things at the time uh, and show us them, right? Like show the reality, show the struggle, 
the the same kind of universal moral dilemmas that everybody faces uh, in a more explicit kind of way. So there's that too, you know, just consider, you know, just keep in mind the context, right? We tend to always forget about context in a lot of literary studies, but yeah, I mean, you know, Baldwin's legacy is Baldwin's legacy. I mean, he's liter I mean, he's one of the most famous writers to ever live. I mean, no doubt about it. He died thir over 30 years ago and is still, you know, being selling copies, being held up as the icon that he is kind of thing. So, yeah, well, I'll write about fucking anyone, right, you know? Yeah. Well, that's what's interesting, too, Men, is he, he didn't exclusively write women, about that. Yeah. Women of color. Well, that, too, is like, the, yeah, there's no, there's no black characters in this book, like, no, I mean, not that he doesn't mention it at all, what, what, what race the characters are, but. I think we know that David is white. I right. think we essentially, we must know that they are white right. because we are living in the 50s. Right. And he just writes it. Yeah. Fearlessly writes it. Yeah. Is that it? That's all I got, yeah, I think. That's all I have, too. I mean, unless you want to talk about, like, I mean, they have a, that fight scene where they have, like, their final argument. And they're standing there, each holding a brick, right? From because the, the whole thing is, yeah, because Giovanni's room is a mess. He's like, he's going to be renovating it. There's all this sort of, you know, talk about Giovanni wanting to fix up his small room. Like, I mean, why do we think it's called like Giovanni's room? Why is the focus on this room? Well, like you said, is because it's like an object that can be blamed or... And like you mentioned it, I think, you know, we were talking a little bit before with uh, he compares Sue's room to Giovanni's room. He compares the hotel room he's staying in with Hella to Giovanni's room. He's thinking about his time in Paris. And then when he's actually like trying to run away with Hella and all that, he's constantly, I need to get away from Giovanni's room. Like that fucking stupid little room that he's renting, like in the back of this boarding house or whatever, you yeah. know, shitty it's cramped it's like muggy like you don't get a good sunlight in that part of it like all that shit smelled right it was dirty giovanni was kind of sloppy there's like shit everywhere when he goes into the apartment but like and it kind of disgusts him but then he's also like kind of like oh i miss it like you know again the very real conflict like that's drama that's the heart yeah. of fucking drama is that conflicting thing like a character not being so black and white like being all of these shades of gray that like bleed into one another and like change tones and all of that like it's yeah that's and where he it also lives. at some point yeah. claims that like you know this is giovanni's this is one moment where i would say i'm not sure about how much to trust our narrator when he basically describes Giovanni's mess as a sort of self-punishment. And I don't feel confident that that's accurate. I think that he's just over and over again finding reasons to be critical of the situation. And they're constantly at odds, right? Like, you want more, and I think this is adequate. Right. And there's that level of not knowing, right? Not knowing what some what you want kind of thing. Like, there's that little bit. So, yeah, it's all over this book. It's a short read, listeners. Pick up a copy. Yeah. We'll always link it in the description. We always encourage you to build your library out so you have nice classic texts like this on your shelf. 
and you can go back and read it whenever you feel the uh, the hankering to read it. And that's really the point of building out your own library, like, is to just have references that, like, like things you can go back to, or you're just a book lover and want to support it, right? Yeah. Anything else on this, though? You good? No, we I'm good. Yeah. Kind of got to pee. Same. Uh, all right. Sign off. Reminder, listeners, we're looking for workshop horror stories. And send those in to heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. If we also have a Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash heavyboard. And for just a few dollars a month, you can receive full access to uncensored episodes, the locked episodes, bonus episodes, our entire back catalog, all available for just a few dollars a month. If you can't afford that, you don't want to pay for that, there are other ways you can support us. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can subscribe to our YouTube channels. You can like and share with family and friends on your social media pages. You can leave a fu- you can leave us a five star review on Apple, uh, Spotify, any of the places that let you review podcasts. Uh, and those are all free; don't cost you anything. And then next week we are doing Nick Flynn's "The Captain Asks for a Show of Hands." Back to poetry. Back to poetry. This has been Heavy Boar. See <laughs> The fart noise. We should get like a soundboard so we can put like a fart noise at the end. Be like, this has been heavy. Heavy. <laughs> constant, constant soundboards. Every time it's a different fart. With a Seinfeld theme. Different kind of fart. Just like a wet one. Like a really tight one. I think we could have a different one every time. We do like the Seinfeld theme. Like this has been heavy board. Like. End it with a fart. I like it. Or a fart version of the Seinfeld theme. Yeah. Just end it with you doing the Seinfeld theme. There you go. Yeah. She get a soundboard for real sound effects we just put in fart sounds anytime we wanted like an ew <laughs> smell yeah like like a, like the morning shock jock like radio yeah. djs and like this day like they're like the morning shows all right i'm stopping the recording now yeah I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. Such a lack of gratitude for life forward. I, I.
say. Bored. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy. Bored. Has you the night sweats and the day sweats, pal? Pal, I do.